You are listening to the Gateway Church in Spring Lake, Michigan. To learn more, visit us at thegatewaygh.com. We want to welcome you. Thank you again for being here. We are glad that you're here. And it's Easter. How many have been looking forward to Easter this year? It's almost as late as it can be in the year, and we're saying, come on, it's almost there. And Easter, if you are like me and my family, it's a day where our family gets together. It's a day for fun. It's a day for celebration. It's a it's springtime kind of celebration. And how many know Easter is a great excuse to eat a great meal, right? How many are looking forward to this afternoon? Come on, be honest. Come on. If not, you're invited to my house. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. We're not doing that. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great excuse for me to put my foot in my mouth, obviously. <laughs> and it's a great excuse to eat some extra candy. You can eat some peeps without any extra calories, calorie-free. And it's a great excuse, Easter is, to take a nap. And how many of you will be taking a nap today? Come on, now we're talking. I see some hands. I might get a nap in this afternoon. But Easter for the church, we say behind the scenes, we believe that the Easter is the Super Bowl Sunday of the year. It's why we exist. Everything we do leads to Easter Sunday. And, it, and, it, and no matter what your tradition is, if you're here today, most likely you're aware of the greatest story that's ever been told. The story of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we've sang about it this morning, right? For those of you that uh, are following along in our soap reading, you read about it the last few days about the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We've done special prayer around that and uh, spent time in God's presence preparing for this moment. But today, for our time, we're going to kind of strip away most of the tradition, certainly the secular, the uh, mainstream, but even some of the churchy stuff around the death and resurrection. Our focus this morning is not directly on the death and resurrection so much. Instead, I want to take a little different approach. What I'd like to do this morning is to answer a question that we all need to answer in our lives. And this question, I'm about to share it with you. You may not even be thinking about this question, and I get that. It may not be on your radar. (laughs) Whether you grew up in the church, whether it's your first time here to church, by the way, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Whether you are a board member and like Gene who was just standing here and you're involved in serving in some way or whether you're just hanging around and we're not even sure why, the goal this morning is for all of us, no matter what situation we're in, is to answer this question, what is your greatest need? What is my greatest need? 
And I was thinking about it. If we took a survey and we took a few of you and we went to downtown Grand Haven this morning or this afternoon down to the boardwalk and, and maybe down to the beach, if anyone's out on the beach, it's going to be a nice day. And, or maybe we were in Muskegon this last Friday night at the arena football game. And I know a few of you were at the game. Or maybe we've hit the streets here in our own neighborhood in Ferrysburg, up and down the streets and in our own little town here. If we were asking people, what is your greatest need? I believe some people would say more money <laughs> or maybe a better car or a nice house or a vacation. I really need a vacation. Some might say, I really need to win the lotto. <laughs> I'm not sure. Others might go a little deeper and, and if they may say, man, I could really use some better health or a better job or I need better government and they may go that way. World peace or world hunger problems may arise. And with a little stirring, a little coaxing, I believe that some might even uh, go a little deeper and say, you know, my greatest need is that my marriage needs to be restored. My friendships need to be renewed. My family dynamics need to be reconciled. Think about it. What is your greatest need? How would you answer that question? If someone approached you on the street, your greatest need. Dave Ramsey talks about the four walls. We talk about food, shelter, clothes, transportation. Those are the things we need. Depending on your situation, if I asked you directly, if you were sick, you might say, I need a healing. Or if you're unemployed, you would say, I need a job. Or if you're saying, I'm single, you might be saying, I need to be married. But all of those answers would fall short. In the most memorized scripture of all time, John 3.16, most of you know it, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. It's interesting, in that verse, it says that God sent his Son because we were in need. We're in need. I like what one commentator said, if the greatest need we had was information, God would have sent an educator. If the greatest need that we had was technology, he would have sent a scientist. If our greatest need was money, he would have sent an, econ uh, an economist. Uh, economist. <laughs> I got it. If our greatest need was pleasure, he would have sent an entertainer. But again, those things fall short. Those things aren't our greatest need. Our greatest need, church, whether we realize it or not, is forgiveness. Forgiveness. God sent his son, Jesus. The message of Easter is a message of forgiveness. God sent us a savior. And it's that forgiveness and a savior is what we really need. Now, when I say a savior is what we need, I believe that's the right word, but how many of us could agree that's a little churchy, right? You need a savior, right? If on the street, I, at the same, same time, I said, hey, did you know you needed a, to be saved or you need a savior? There may be some that would be like, what do I need to be saved from? Saved from the economy or saved from the government or saved from pollution or crazy people in the world? I don't know. Maybe you need to be saved from yourself on the street, if there was a confusion when you said you need a savior, 
if, if it was totally foreign to somebody, you, you might follow up with another question and say, haven't you ever sinned? And again, well, you might get some looks like, man, sin, what sin, what sin, right? It's another churchy word, the problem of sin. See, our society, in our society, sin is an uncomfortable word. Sin is tough. As a culture, we've kind of abandoned the idea of sin. We don't talk about it. We don't mention it very often. It's, it's like we don't want to know or to acknowledge that it's there. When our kids disobey us, we don't say, you have sinned, little son or little daughter, right? Or if you get pulled over in the car because you've been going too fast and that's happened to me a few times, but the officer has never said, Sir, you have sinned. Here is your ticket. It's just not part of our vocabulary. If you're listening to the radio or on TV or on the internet, the whatever the latest scandal is, and you know there's going to be one this week, we're not going to hear, well, here's so-and-so, they've sinned again. And if we did hear that, we'd probably all like cringe, right? Be like, oh, that's weird, because we're not used to hearing about this sin. Now, we know our kids are not perfect. We know that we're not perfect. And most people, they're just more comfortable saying, well, I'm not perfect. In fact, a lot of people would say, well, instead of saying, I'm a sinner, I'd rather say, I've made some mistakes. How many would agree? That's a little easier to say, right? I've made some mistakes. But the problem is, with mistakes, it falls short. There are some serious limitations. It's not adequately describing our greatest need. You say, why is that? Well, a mistake is an error in action, or a calculation, or a, an opinion. Uh, it's a mistake, or it's an error in judgment. A mistake is caused by poor reasoning, or being careless, or insufficient knowledge. That's a mistake. Mistakes are accidental, right? If you're taking a test and you mess up on the on an answer, you've made a mistake, that's an accident, right? If you're driving down the road the wrong way on a one-way street, that's an accident, right? That's a mistake. And mistakes, this is important, are things that we learn from, that we correct, and hopefully we don't do those things again. But on the other side, we have sin. And sin is different. It just is. It's ingrained in each of us. The Bible says that we're born with sin. And whether you believe the Bible or you're wondering if that's true, uh, that statement that you're born with sin, you know deep down that there's truth in what I just said, doing things that are wrong. The truth is we cannot stop sinning without the help of the Holy Spirit. That's my story, at least. The truth is, is that our sin harms us. It harms our relationship with each other. It also harms our relationship with God. And it's sin that is related to our greatest need to be forgiven and our need for a Savior. It's sin. In a term, it's a term that you may avoid, right? 
It's something you might resist. You might try to minimize it in your life. You may turn a blind eye, so to speak. But the truth is, you cannot avoid sin. You're going to deal with it. You cannot minimize it. You may think you're okay. You may think that you got things under control. I've got this all put together. But actually, you may be in some serious danger. In regards to that, I want to tell you a story. It's my story. This is a true story. Some of you know that I like adventure. And I uh, grew up in a home where my dad, he was you know, kind of leading the way. He liked adventure as well. And my dad and I, a few years back, probably, I don't know, 15, 17 years ago, uh, we ended up learning how to uh, spearfish in, down in South Florida when my parents moved down there. And we would have a blast. Every time my parents would bring us down, we'd get out in the water and we'd do some spearfishing. And uh, so I, w- I had done some spearfishing. And then later, about four or five years ago, I heard that there were some guys in Michigan that were spearfishing in Michigan. And I've shared this story before. But uh, with that, I was like curious and I'm thinking, hey, how does that happen? And I really took a deep dive, pun intended, into like spearfishing here in Michigan. And the guys that I was hanging with, they were studying free diving. And it's interesting. And so I went out and got some new equipment, got some new fins here. Uh, these are my competition free dive uh, fins here. And and uh, got a, a wet, full wetsuit here So because in Michigan, if you're diving, you better have a wetsuit. And we started, I started studying and learning uh, about free diving. And uh, in level one free diving, it's, you get a cert, uh, certificate uh, where you are allowed to go, uh, or safely, you've been trained to go 66 feet, 20 meters. And there's some depth depth related hurdles. There's some equalization uh, issues. There's some training uh, techniques under the water that you do. And you do these things to avoid injury and possibly death. Because if you're going under the water, um, there's always a danger of that. Now, there is a level two that goes to 40 meters to 132 feet. And then you're getting into some physics and some. Uh, some other things, so, you know, you got to trigger your, um, um, and I'm not even sure how to say it, some diver's reflexes, there's some breathing exercises, you got to trick your brain into thinking that it does not need oxygen when it's saying, I need oxygen, and, uh, and, and so it's, it's a fun journey, and so I'd been studying uh, to do my level one, and I'd, I'd been working hard on that, I would be, I mean, I'd be driving down the road, and at stoplights, I would hold my breath. And I was just like, I was learning to hold my breath, and it was important. And, and uh, I actually got up to holding my breath in a pool, a static kind of situation. I, I would hold my breath for four minutes, just like the Navy SEALs. And it was pretty fun. And I, I was enjoying it. Yeah. Never had a problem. So anyway, so now my story. So we're on an adventure. The group, a group of guys and I, we head up to Traverse City, to Grand Traverse Bay, and uh, it's beautiful water up there. Uh, we kayaked out to about 90 to, to 100 feet, and it was crystal clear. When we dropped our anchor, our weight, uh, we could see the anchor until 80 feet. I mean, it was beautiful. It was a gorgeous day. And what we were going to do is we were going to do a series of what they call line dives. 
And what line dives are is you follow a line. Go ahead to the next slide there. Uh, you follow a line down to the depth where there's a, uh, there's a weight at the bottom, and you, it's all measured, and you know how far you've gone, and then you come back up. And we were going to do a series of line dives, and we did. We set the first uh, two dives uh, for each of us in the team to 66 feet. Every single one of us there had studied and were aware of the how to get to 66 feet safely, and we all did that. After our first two dives, we decided to lower the weight another 12 feet to 78 feet. And we went to 78 feet, and we each did two dives. But on my second dive, when I got to that weight at the bottom, I kind of turned around, and I actually went a little deeper, probably to 80, maybe 82 feet. And I came back up and everything was fine. We were going to do one final dive in that location, and then we were going to go do some wreck diving later that afternoon. And in the fifth dive is when things got me in trouble. Now, we were comfortable at 80 feet. I knew that from the previous dive. But at the depth of 90 feet is between 80 and 90 feet, some things change. And it was on that fifth dive, I got a good breathe up, so I had lots of oxygen. The anchor was still set at 78 feet, so almost 80 feet. And I'm headed down like a normal dive. This was not premeditated at all, but in the moment, I get to the weight at the bottom, so I know I'm at 78 feet. And I look up, which I'm really looking down, because, you know, going down, and I see the sand. And it looks like it was right there, like I could touch it. And our depth finder on the kayak said we were in about 90 feet of water. And I thought, in a split second, I thought, you know what? I bet I could hit the sand. Not a good idea. Because what happens at 90 feet different things happen to your body. Your body at that point is compressed three times. Uh, and because of that, your body releases nitrogen. And you get this euphoric feeling. And it's kind of a natural high. And you feel safe. It's a real thing. In fact, they've made movies about this, pre-diving movies, if you could look it up. And where people, they feel like when they get to their depth, that they, they feel like they could live there forever. It's a weird sensation. And it's true. That fifth dive, I decided to take two more kicks. Kick, 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 kick. I turned around. I didn't get to the sand. I thought, oh, I'll use my big flippers here, and I'll kick the sand. And all this is happening in seconds. I don't see any sand move. And then all of a sudden, I look back up, and I realized I can see the weight but I couldn't see the kayaks. I thought, oh boy. <laughs> and so I didn't really panic necessarily at that moment, but I started kicking. And you kick at a regular beat all the way up to the last 30 feet, that last 10 meters. And what happens at the last 10 meters, you go to half kicks. And so instead of kick, 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 you're like kick, and then you wait, and then you kick again. And because you become buoyant, and you kind of you ascend that final little bit, and you take your time. But in that last 30 feet, what I'm told is that I never stopped kicking. I just kept on kicking and kept on kicking, and I ran out of oxygen, and I had 
a shallow water blackout. And what I remember is waking up with on my back, them hitting my face, my mask off, and they're saying, breathe now, breathe now, breathe now. And I came to thank the Lord. But it was a scary moment. It was a scary moment for Jessica when she heard about it. You say, why in the world are you telling this story, <laughs> right? <laughs> and I haven't been to that depth since, I promise. But the reason I tell you that story is because something happened at 90 feet for me. At 90 feet, I felt safe. I'm thinking, I've got this. I've already been here twice, right? I could do it again. I can push the limit. It's no big deal. What could happen? And in those split-moment decisions, I made a bad decision at 90 feet. And the same thing is true about our sin. Walk with me. We minimize our sin. We say things like, well, I've got this, right? I feel safe. I'm not hurting anyone. Seriously, how many times have you pushed the limit? Just one more drink. Just one more page. Just one more transaction. Just one more visit. Just one more phone call. And if you said any of those things, and you've said, oh, I'm not too worried about it. It's not a big deal. I'm not affecting anyone else. It's just me. I can handle it. If you've said any of those things, what's the worst thing that could happen, right? Well, according to Scripture, you are in danger. It's like you're at 90 feet. And whether you believe Scripture or not, I believe that we're going to see that there's this something in here is going to resonate with all of us here. There's validity in Scripture. We believe this to be God's truth, and we're about to look at that. But in regards to heaven, in regards to eternity, how good do you need to be in order to make it to heaven? Seriously. Well, Jesus answers that question in Matthew chapter 5. Turn with me there. Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, it's part of the greatest sermon ever shared, the Sermon on the Mount. And in verse 20, Jesus says this. And I mean, this is, when I read this, they would have gasped. You would, if you put yourself in the shoes of the early listeners that would have heard this. Because this is what Jesus said. He said, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And it's like a hush went across the crowd. And people thinking, did I hear him wrong? And you say, well, what, what's up with this, right? See, the righteousness, how good you are, the, thing, the right things that you do, and it says there that unless your righteousness surpasses or is greater than the Pharisees, and the Pharisees that were in the culture there, they were the cream of the crop in regards to following the law. In fact, it's almost like they got paid to follow the rules. In the Old Testament law, when you put it all up together, the hundreds of laws that were supposed to be followed, there was no one that could follow all the rules. No one could do it. 
And so the Pharisees weren't even following the law to a T. And then Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses or goes beyond or you're better than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, it says you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And I'm thinking, whoa. And then Jesus goes on to explain. Verse 21, you've heard that it's said that people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone that murders will be subject to judgment. And people are like, whew, yeah, that's right. And they're thinking, I've got this one licked. I've never murdered anybody, right? But then Jesus goes on, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. And I'm saying, whoa, what just happened? So now if I have the feelings that would lead to potential murder, I'm still guilty? And I've got to be better than the Pharisees? In verse 27, another example. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. And they're hearing this and saying, oh, all right, I've never committed adultery. I'm safe. But then Jesus goes on. But I tell you that if anyone even looks at a woman, and I think you could put in there a woman or a man, lustfully has already committed adultery with him or her in his heart. But I don't know about you. And I'm looking around. My guess is we'd all be guilty at some level there. And he's saying, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, we are all in big trouble. The standard is too high, especially when you put it in light of how Jesus is interpreting the law, reinterpreting the law. And it's Easter 2019, and that's the message. You are doomed. My job is done. <laughs> Seriously. It's like, okay, we're in trouble here, right? We all have a problem. We all deal with sin. And our greatest need is to be forgiven. And in order to be forgiven, we absolutely need a Savior. How many know what I'm talking about? You say, well, how does that work? Well, we believe in Scripture. We believe that even if you don't believe in Scripture, you know that some of these Scriptures I'm about to read are true. Let me give you an example. Romans 3.23 says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, in regards to the glory of God, I'm not sure, but you know deep down that you all have sinned. There's nobody denying that here. We've all made mistakes. Mistakes. No one is perfect. We've all sinned. It separates us from God. Romans 3.10 says there's no one righteous, not even one. And then it goes on to talk about what sin looks like from verses 11 through 18. We won't take the time to look at that. Romans 6.23, another great verse, says, but For the wages of sin, or the cost of our sin, is death or destruction. 
and you're saying, even if you don't believe the Bible, you can put yourself in those shoes and you say, yeah, I know that. When I mess up or when I do something stupid, there's consequences, aren't there? And so the wages of sin is death, and this is where things start to turn. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I love that. Romans 5.8, another example. But God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, caught in our sin, Christ died for us. That's the message of Easter, the death, and then the resurrection of Jesus. So what do we need to do? Romans 10, 9, right? If we declare with your mouth, or if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the message of Easter. And actually, we're going to follow up this message with two messages looking at why Jesus is the answer to our greatest need the next two Sundays are going to be some of the most important Sundays of the year. You say, well, will this work for me? I mean, can just anyone do this? Well, Romans 10, 13 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's not a question. It's will be if you call on the name of the Lord. You say, well, what happens then? Well, there's a peace that comes. Romans 5, 1. Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And you add to all of that, Romans 8, 1, that says this, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In this little progression of scriptures through the book of Romans, we call it the Romans road to salvation. You can look it up. Look it up on your own time. There's eight verses here. And you say, well, what do we do with these verses? How do we handle these in our lives? What do we do with this knowledge? Well, I believe there's a key to what we should do in regards to the Romans' road to salvation. And it's found in the book of Luke, chapter 15. In Luke 15, there are three stories, three parables that are told. Now, these are not true stories. They're stories. One's about a lost sheep. One's about a lost coin. And the third one is the parable of the lost son. Some of you may have grown up and you heard it, the prodigal son story. What's interesting about this story is that there's two brothers. One on one side says, hey, I'm going to take my inheritance early and I'm going to go and live my life however I want. On the other side, we've got a, a brother that is uh, stays at home, and he's doing what's right, he's, he's kind of in the family business, and he's got things under control. But this guy over here, he takes all of his inheritance, he lives however he wants, he makes choices that no one else, that he thinks doesn't affect anyone else, and he blows all of the money. Then the story goes on that there's this famine in the land. And he's out of money, he can't find work, he's actually eating in the pig pen the same food that the pigs are eating. I mean, it's a bad situation, this story that's kind of put up. And he tells him the story that he thinks back, man, the servants in my father's house, they are treated even better. They're eating better than I am. And he humbles himself 
And something happens in verse 21. Turn with me there. Luke chapter 15, verse 21. The son comes back and says to his father, he says, Father, this is a key, I have sinned. Pause there for a second. There are some that are here, no doubt, in a room this size, that have never said those words. Lord, I've sinned. And today is going to be a great day. We're going to give you an opportunity to do that. He says, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. See, what happens here is he humbles himself. He acknowledges that he is a sinner. He does what Romans 10, 9 said, right? That if we confess with our mouth, right, he, he, he confesses. And then look what happens. Verse 22, but the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put on a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fat calf in and kill it. Let's have a feast. Let's celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and now is alive. He was caught in his sin, but now he's alive. He's returned. He's back with us. He was lost, and now he's found. So they began to celebrate. They celebrated the goodness of a Savior. It starts with confession. Admitting of sin. It starts with a need to be forgiven, to have a Savior. And it starts when you realize that there's no one else to blame other than the person that you see when you look in the mirror. No one else is blamed except me. The truth is, and you know this, whether you believe the Bible or not, you cannot fix yourself. It's just the truth. And there's a lot of people that try really hard to fix themselves at a rate of about $120 an hour, maybe weekly. Or maybe for a week you say, well, I'm not going to do whatever it is that you do. Or maybe you get through two weeks. I know one counselor that says you can hold your breath. It's interesting how in the dive analogy for 90 days and kind of white knuckle it and say, all right, I'm, I'm not going to do it, whatever the situation is. And you might be able to do it for a season on your own. But what happens, the problem, is that that sin that we've been talking about, <laughs> it's like in the back corner, even if you're not doing it, and it's back there doing push-ups, getting stronger. And it's going to come back. So what do you need? You need to realize that you can't do it on your own, and you need a Savior. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you have created this moment for us to grapple with our greatest need. Our need to be forgiven. 
our need for a Savior. And Lord, I pray that in the next few moments that you would be glorified in our hearts and our lives and that you will stir within us and bring us to a point of decision. We pray this in Jesus' name. So without further ado, Father, I pray that you would go before us, behind us, and all around us on this Easter Sunday morning. God, illuminate your truth. Continue to do it. Bring us back for the next two weeks to learn how Jesus answers the question of our greatest need. God, help us in this. But for those that have just made that decision, just prayed that prayer, and they're meeting it in their heart, Lord, I pray that they would have the courage to step out, come forward, and to meet and to pray. Lord, I pray that you would do this. Lord, in Jesus' name, go before us, behind us, all around us. Amen. God bless you. Go in the grace of God. Enjoy your day. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message from the Gateway Church. If you'd like to find out more about our church, such as service times, giving, and ways to get connected, visit us at thegatewaygh.com.